from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. It is due south on WUNC. Good morning. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Friday, 10 o'clock. That means time for you to get caught up on some of the notable happenings in North Carolina news and politics. McHenry's surprise decision not to run again next year is shaking up other GOP primaries. This decision is more than politics. It's about where our calling from God first started, the home where we started our family, where our kids go to Jewish caucus leader Jeffrey Beerer said in a statement that the caucus is pleased at the recognition, especially at a time of rising anti-Semitism. I haven't been able to get in touch with this relative, or I've been able to get in touch with them and they're okay for now, but I'm really worried about them. The shock and confusion about, well, why does this not make everyone else crazy? Am I crazy for, for being upset about this? People feel like they're in the twilight zone. Do you all actually... Ho, ho, ho. Do you actually... Did, <laughs> did you ask that question? <laughs> Just a few of the sounds from the week in North Carolina news, including several interviews heard right here on Due South about the mental anguish playing out at home following the impacts and what is playing out between Israel and Hamas, as well as a conversation about Black Santas and improving representation. If you missed anything, have a gander at DueSouthRadio.org. Now for our panelists for our North Carolina Friday News Roundup. Here in studio are Colin Campbell, WNC Capitol Bureau Chief, Lucille Sherman with Axios Raleigh, and on the line from Washington, D.C. is Danielle Battaglia, McClatchy Capitol Hill correspondent. Good morning, squad. Morning, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Fluid situation this Friday morning as Michigan State University Board of Trustees have reportedly finalized a transfer of presidential proportions. Kevin Guskowitz, still technically the UNC Chapel Hill Chancellor, has been uh, confirmed by Board of Trustees this morning as the top official at Michigan State, the school's next president. Important for us to note right here off the top, we are taping this during the 8 o'clock hour, so uh, things could change. Colin, as of now, where do things stand? So uh, as we're taping this, the uh, Michigan State Board is meeting right now. They have announced that he is their pick. I think they're in the process of voting to make it official, but I think it's it's pretty well a done deal at this point. So we're just going to wait until uh, the formal announcement from UNC and then find out what the next steps are. Uh, UNC President Peter Hans will be the one in charge of picking an interim chancellor. Uh, there have been some names bandied about, but no one really knows for sure who may be taking over uh, UNC Chapel Hill from this point. But it seems like uh, Guskowitz is... Uh, Definitely gone. It's just a question of exactly when when his last day will be at this point. Those I want to get to that in a moment, too. But you, you mentioned names being bandied about. Uh, is it a short list? Any notable names? Anything to pick at there or not yet time? The, the one that I've seen in multiple reports, and with the caveat that I haven't done any reporting on this, so I don't know exactly the sources and how likely these names are to actually be the ones in contention for President Hans to choose from. But the one that really stuck out to me is Lee Roberts. Mm-hmm. He was the budget director under Republican Governor Pat McCrory some years ago. He now leads a venture capital firm in Raleigh, is a member of the uh, Board of Trustees, um, and uh, would be an interesting choice. I think would raise a lot of eyebrows from the political angle of that because he is more in the political realm than the academia realm, mm-hmm. um, and that's going to probably uh, upset a lot of people at Chapel Hill were he to be chosen for this role. And Lee Roberts is the son of Koki Roberts, uh, a name that many uh, of our listeners are familiar with, long time uh, reporter, political correspondent for 
uh, NPR. Lucille, please remind us of the underlying why here, as in why the president of UNC Chapel Hill, a so-called public ivy, is making this move. Yeah, I mean, I think that's anyone's guess, right? He hasn't exactly said, but he's had sort of a tumultuous tenure. Um, He's dealt with a lot of sort of controversy Mm -hmm. over the last almost five years of his tenure. Um, He's dealt with um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and the university's decision to not grant her tenure. He's dealt with the fallout of um, the fall of Confederate monument Silent Sam He's really sort of and then not to mention the pandemic, which is a whole other thing, plus tons of pressure from sort of the legislature and other political powers at be. All that to say, though, Michigan State is not immune from <laughs> controversy. No, He's not going to place. calmer waters over there for sure. No. And I think that's what makes it really fascinating is it's not like he's making a super smooth sailing jump to a new place. So Chancellor Guskowitz is joining the likes of Carol Folt. Uh, former UNC Chapel Hill Chancellor, and also to a slightly different extent, uh, UNC Board of Governors President Margaret Spellings, as leading figures who ultimately seem to have had enough with just the tumultuous political landscape as it overlaid with the UNC system or the UNC Chapel Hill campus. Colin alluded to this a moment ago. Uh, Just how long uh, Chancellor Guskowitz remains in Chapel Hill is something of an open question. Do either of you want to touch that? Uh, We've got the calendar year wrapping up here. We've got an academic year in six months. There are plenty of people in Chapel Hill that are not happy that Kevin Guskowitz would dare make this jump. Uh, But it, as we're as we're saying here, appears he's going to. Do we have any sense of just how much longer he will, uh, you know, know, uh, handle the duties in Chapel Hill? That's a good question, because like sometimes people in these executive roles will stay on for months. Uh, Sometimes they're out the minute they announce that they're leaving. And sometimes they do what a lot of us in like normal people jobs do of like, I'll give my three to four weeks notice and then I'm going to move on. Um, But it it is going to be an interesting timeline going into the holidays, the semester break. You know, how quickly does he leave? How quickly do we hear about an interim chancellor being named to this position? I've seen some reports that he'll leave sort of in March. Um, This is sort of a situation that's in flux. So Mm -hmm. I guess we'll see sort of for sure when that is. But it could be sort of as early as then, which would be interesting to leave in the middle of a semester. Colin and Lucille here in studio. Danielle Battaglia on the line. We're going to bring her in in a moment as we discuss candidate filing and the dominoes that are already starting to uh, fall and twist and turn here this first week in December. Uh, But another higher education note before we get there. Meanwhile, presidential drama at a different Triangle University, St. Augustine fired President Christine McPhail on Monday night. St. Augs had been on probation with the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges, that's the S-A-C-S-C-O-C, mouthful, since last December. On Tuesday, Leslie Rodriguez McClellan was named acting president of uh, St. Augs, the private historically black university in Raleigh. On the same day, the school was informed by that mouthful of an acronym, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges, that it would lose its accreditation. This clearly another messy situation in higher ed. As for the why in this story, here's a clip from McPhail's attorney, David Tracy. She has alleged that members of the Board of Trustees yelled at and berated her while not doing the same to male employees. And she has alleged that male members of the Board of Trustees disregarded her opinions and recommendations while favoring those of male employees. So, President, now former President McPhail, uh, alleges that 
she was forced out following some uh, interpersonal strife on a board meeting. Uh, Colin, what jumps out to you uh, as it pertains to the story and what, what, what else are you wanting to know here? I mean, it's interesting the allegations being made because she was named uh, president of St. Augs after her husband died abruptly, I think a couple years ago from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both have worked in academia, but it's sort of interesting. You don't don't see that happen in these kind of roles very often where uh, someone passes away or it suddenly is, has to leave and then their spouse steps up into the role. Uh, so for some of those sexism allegations, sort of a, an interesting background there. I think looking more broadly, um, these H, very small HBCUs have really had some challenges in recent years. Um, Raleigh home to two different HBCUs. Shaw University is right. the bigger of the two. It has also not been without its challenges and some leadership issues. Um, some other HBCUs have completely closed. There was a university just across the state line in Virginia a couple of years back that is now pretty much just abandoned. I, I visited their campus once when I was passing through, and it's you know really sad to see some of these schools that have been around for you know over a century um, not succeed and, and have to close. So I think that's there, there's some existential challenges for a lot of these types of schools, and St. Augs is certainly not immune to those challenges. North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on WUNC. Uh, we'll continue to monitor those higher education uh, leadership shifts. You can uh, learn more at our website, WUNC.org. Candidate filing began on Monday. It runs for one more week through next Friday. Already some significant surprises, including one from the North Carolina congressman who just weeks ago was at the center of the U.S. House Speaker drama. In a statement, McHenry said, quote, I believe there is a reason and a season for everything. And for me, the season has come to an end. Just like that, it's come to an end. 48-year-old Patrick McHenry, who filled the vacant speakership role on an interim basis earlier this fall, will not seek another term. Danielle Battaglia, on the line from Washington, D.C., how come? I mean, there's a season for everything, and it's come to an end. Um, No, I would say his explanation that he's given to reporters is that He's been in this job for 20 years, and that has been the length of his predecessors or around the length of his predecessors. And he, his goal was to either be WHIP or the chair of the Financial Services Committee, which he succeeded in this year and uh, probably far exceeded it in being the first temporary speaker of the House. And um, you can only serve in that leadership position for so many years not the temporary speaker, but the financial services chairman. And um, that's set to expire at the end of this term. So he has reached the end of his goal and saw it as a time to walk away. What's surprising is that there were rumors far reaching in the Capitol that he would step away when when he gave up the temporary speakership. Mm -hmm. And then he immediately put out a statement saying, I'm running for re-election. So the about face kind of threw everyone for a loop. Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent for uh, the News and Observer, is with us here on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup. Colin Campbell, WNT Capitol Bureau Chief, as well as Lucille Sherman, reporter with Axios Raleigh, uh, are all here as well. We're going to continue in a moment with the dominoes of candidate filing. And later, could a 10-figure bond finally jumpstart the high-speed rail from Raleigh to Richmond that has been long talked about? Also this hour, we'll discuss a new caucus that has been formed within the state Democratic Party. This is the News Roundup, North Carolina style, on Due South here on WUNC. We'll return in just a moment. 
Welcome back. It's due south on WNC. Friday means we're reviewing North Carolina news and politics. And uh, feels worth noting on this December the 8th, it is a notable day in American history. On this date in 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared December 7th would be a day which will live in infamy and declared war on Japan. Also, notably, sadly, on this day, 43 years ago today, John Lennon was murdered. Uh, Just synthesizing and thinking about that December 8th. And uh, we're rolling along here with North Carolina News, a focus on what's happening politically uh, as we get ready for 2024. Candidate filing is underway. And one of the most notable dominoes to fall thus far is uh, 10th District Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry announcing that he will uh, not run for another term. He has been in Congress for uh, two decades. uh, And it leaves an interesting uh, race open already. At least one Republican has announced plans to fill McHenry's post. Pat Harrigan ran for Congress last year. He was defeated in a heavily drawn Democratic district. Harrigan and his wife announced his candidacy for what was or what is McHenry's post earlier this week on X. This decision is more than politics. It's about where our calling from God first started, the home where we started our family, where our kids go to school, and where we practice our faith. Colin, who's Pat Harrigan? So he is an Army vet, uh, someone who really, I think, was a unknown in politics until his run uh, against Jeff Jackson uh, last year. Uh, now is going to be running in uh, up until this week in the 14th District, setting up an interesting primary with House Speaker Tim Moore. And he was going on the warpath against Tim Moore, complaining about casinos, bringing up uh, Tim Moore's uh, alienation of affection-related uh, lawsuit issues. Um, and then suddenly, within minutes of Patrick McHenry's announcement, which, remember, caught most of us by surprise, he announced, I'm switching races. I've hired Patrick McHenry's campaign manager as my campaign manager. And, oh, by the way, I got Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson to endorse me. So he's he laid some groundwork there and definitely is is jumping in way ahead of anybody else who's now just considering. I mean, the multiple other Republicans have come out and said, I'll think about it, but this has caught me off guard and I have to take a couple days to decide. And so far, I don't think anyone as of this morning has filed yet other than Kerrigan. It it struck me almost as a a little bit of like a kumbaya moment. I mean, it could have... there, there could have been dynamite going off within Republican circles, but it seemed to 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 be calm waters for the moment. Uh, Danielle, talk to me about why this opening matters. Like, okay, it's a it's a it's a congressional opening that 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 matters. Um, why does it matter for our listeners? There's a couple of reasons it matters. Uh, first of all, we lost another Republican in the House, and the majority in the House is so slim compared to the Democrats and is getting slimmer. So it's a seat that they want to maintain. Now, this is a heavily Republican seat, so it will likely go to a Republican. It would be some huge Democrat would have to come up and really sweep in to uh, win that, and that would be nearly impossible. But um, it's been a seat held by Patrick McHenry for 20 years and held by the person before him for 18 years and I believe 20 years before that. So this is a long-standing seat. There's a lot of people who felt like they were the successor. I know Representative Jason Sane has told people he feels like the successor to Patrick McHenry, but because he's announced so late into the cycle, they have not had time to fundraise and do what they need to do to get that job. So there's a lot of scrambling right now. There's dominoes going into different candidacies where people thought they would be running and now having to make decisions on whether they will 
run for that seat or stay where they are. We're admittedly getting in the weeds a little bit here, but a couple of notes. Pat Harrigan has not held elected office before unless someone's about to break news to me. And nobody had heard of him until probably last year. Nicely stated. Thank you, Colin. Uh, Jason Sane is a Republican in the state house from Lincoln County, and he has been uh, uh, the head of the Appropriations Committee. He's one of the, you know, handful of most powerful Republicans in the state house. Appears, from my perspective as a former political reporter, to be a, a very obvious potential candidate um, for this seat. What more can you tell us about Sane and whether or not you think he's going to get in here, Lucy? Oh, man. I um, It'd be really interesting if he jumped in. It'd also make for—it's like you said, this is sort of a kumbaya moment. It feels like things have gotten easier for a lot of Republicans. And McHenry stepping down, Harrigan moving to fill his seat, um, our House Speaker, Tim Moore— now has a seat to run for in Congress that could be a little bit easier. Um, it feels like there's a lot of, this is simpler for everybody. So if Sane hopped in, that would maybe go away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this could yeah. get pretty crowded. You're also hearing uh, State Representative John Bradford, a Republican from northern Mecklenburg County. He's currently running for state treasurer and has been for a number of months. He has said that he's considering switching, which would sort of create more dominoes falling because there's not another Republican at this point running for state treasurer. Dale Falwell, our current state treasurer, has filed to run for governor, although there's been some speculation, might he switch races? And if you've already filed, which Jason Sane is in this category, I think Tuesday is the deadline to switch races before you're locked into what you chose. If you haven't filed yet at all, you have until next Friday to choose, but not a whole lot of decision-making time for any of these guys. You need a Venn diagram to keep track of all this stuff. <laughs> uh, it is, it, it's interesting, and there are many unanswered questions that are going to play out uh, here in the next week or so. We've mentioned the name Tim Moore a couple of times. He, of course, uh, is the longest-serving speaker now in North Carolina's uh, history. He is not running for another term as speaker. He's not running for another term uh, in the state house. He is running for uh, a term in Congress. He's running uh, in the 14th congressional district, and he's doing this as the districts that he is running in are being challenged in federal court. I know very well the process that the legislature went through to draw these districts to uh, to not take race into account whatsoever. So uh, kind of a, I don't know, a fork in the road here, two different stories. One, Tim Moore running for Congress. Two, the districts uh, that, that he helped, um, th- that he voted on, that he was part of establishing are being challenged. Uh, Danielle, uh, weave them together for us. Uh, lots of challenges, redistricting litigation in North Carolina, nothing new. Uh, this this lawsuit came late. Uh, do you anticipate these districts uh, uh, being upended? Do we have it? I mean, it, that's a very speculative question. Talk to me about it Tim Moore. Yeah. Talk it, to me about. Go uh, ahead. OK, I was going to say it's very speculative, but we saw that in the last election. So um, I would say nothing would surprise me at this point. We have a different set of judges at this point. So. Um, I will say it's anyone's guess on what's going to happen there. As for Tim Moore, um, he was gearing up for a very ugly race, and it looks like he's going to be able to walk into this, uh, this not only candidacy, but his actual job in Congress pretty easily. There is one other candidate running in that position, but he seems to be the sure front runner. Um, And what people were concerned about was he had a series of missteps throughout his career, but in the last probably six months from affairs to trying to push a casino that people were not happy about, um, that Pat Harrigan was ready to use against him throughout this race. And now it sounds like it's going to be a cakewalk for him. 
attrition is very real, uh, more so at the state level than at the congressional level. We have uh, talked here about just how long Patrick McHenry was in Congress and his predecessor was in Congress. And oftentimes, if you can get in and you can win, you can be there for about as long as you want to, barring major scandal. The power of incumbency is still a very real thing uh, in politics. Redistricting is perhaps the most likely variable to upend. I think of like Mark Walker, and we'll touch on Mark Walker maybe here in a minute. Um, but uh, getting into Congress is the best way to stay in Congress, maybe. I don't know if that's the best way to say it or not. I want to move from Congress to the North Carolina General Assembly. Uh, there have been a number of retirements because attrition is just a reality of this every two years. Colin, if you would, tell us about one or two notable state lawmakers who uh, who's retiring and, and just what the ramifications are. So probably the most powerful on the retirement list is State Senator Joyce Kravick from Forsyth County. She's been one of the leaders on health care issues, uh, been involved in the new abortion restriction. She's been involved in Medicaid issues, um, been in office a, a, a good while. She's stepping down, uh, probably more uh, age-related uh, decision to, to retire than anything else. Uh, there have been some prominent Democrats as well. Uh, Representative Rosa Gill from Wake County, uh, Marvin Lucas from uh, Cumberland County, notable in that they're both former educators and so have been very active on education issues. Uh, so a, a lot of turnover there. And then we'll, that sort of opens the door to some potentially competitive primaries, because as we were alluding to before with uh, some of the longevity of these folks, is once you get in there, you're pretty well safe with that incumbency factor. But once it's an open door and there is no incumbent, then those become races to watch, particularly in the primary, because none of these are uh, particularly competitive in a general election standpoint, the way these districts are drawn, at least for the, the folks that are stepping back and retiring. It's the North Carolina Friday News Roundup on Due South. Colin Campbell, Lucille Sherman, and Danielle Battaglia are here providing context, insight, and analysis. We're going to go rapid fire, picking up some of the bits and pieces that we have not touched on yet. Just give me a little uh, finger, some eye action here, and you can jump in on any of these if you would like. Democratic Congresswoman Kathy Manning, who serves parts of Guilford County, says she will not seek re-election due to, quote, egregiously gerrymandered district, uh, close quote. Manning has been in office for two terms. Among those seeking to fill this newfangled sixth congressional district is Republican Mark Walker, previously noted here, who has already served parts of Guilford County in Congress for three terms. Meanwhile, former Republican state Senator Deanna Ballard filed to run for the GOP nomination for lieutenant governor this week. The Watauga County conservative made a name for herself in fairly fast fashion while serving in the legislature as an education-focused lawmaker. Also, Charlotte City Councilman Braxton Winston, who went from activist to municipal government, will now seek statewide office in the form of commissioner of labor. The Democrat is seeking to replace Josh Dobson. He's the first term Republican labor commissioner who is not seeking reelection. Anything to add to any of that? You know, just a lot of uh, folks who've been running for a while are starting to uh, run their candidacies. And there's a few more where we, th we think there might be some race switching. Uh, you mentioned Lieutenant Governor, the other one of the other, I think, nine Republicans running for that office. Sam Page, the sheriff of Rockingham County, who has, uh, I think, as Danielle has reported, uh, considering the idea of maybe switching races and primarying Senate leader Phil Berger. So we'll know in the next week if he decides to do that. You're going to have a lot of a lot of reporters uh, descending upon Eden, North Carolina, and, and popping into diners if uh, if that race takes that. Oh, for takes sure. We, when, we're, when we're not used to that. Uh, all right, let's transition to the state Democratic Party, which formalized a Jewish caucus this week. This followed several tumultuous weeks and meetings, including some national media attention, during which the state party did not initially recognize such a caucus. Now they have. 
It's an undeniably symbolic development. I'm curious, however, Lucille, does it have functional teeth? You know, to me, it's hard to say within, you know, state parties. I think whether things have functional teeth in general (laughs) can depend on sort of who's in charge. Um, You know, we even see in our state Republican Party, like how much influence do they have over what happens in the legislature or what happens in Congress? Um, And so to me, this feels like an important symbol if nothing else, like you said, they got national media attention for sort of a split vote in which um, a lot of people recuse themselves. And so I think for, you know, onlookers on this, this is sort of a symbolic move at the moment, but could be something more um, that sort of demonstrates, yeah, their support for the Jewish caucus. And they had a lot of pressure uh, to exhibit that support. I'm interested to hear from both Colin and Danielle. I'm going to kind of slot this for each of you. Danielle's going to take the congressional delegation. Colin's going to take uh, the legislative, uh, I don't even know if it's a delegate, it's not a delegation, smattering of legislators. I'm wondering what you derive from this, what what fractures you see within progressives, within democratic politics, um, lawmakers, as it pertains to the Israel-Hamas war and support, unwavering support of Israel, there's obviously some very sensitive nuance here, but Colin, I guess, lay out the nuance for us at the at the state level among Democrats. Yeah. So the legislature, interestingly, uh, had a Republican sponsored, uh, I think it was a resolution or a statement of support, something like that, that they did sort of on a symbolic level earlier this session, right after the war broke out in the Middle East in support of Israel. And there were several Democrats, uh, the more left leaning wing of the Democratic uh, caucus in the House and Senate. Uh, opted either not to vote on that. Uh, I think I don't think any of them voted against it, but a lot of them just like said they they didn't like the wording of it. They felt like it wasn't, you know, the right tone to set for how to to weigh in on this conflict. And you had other Democrats who were very much full throated, joined with the Republicans. Yes, let's stand with Israel. Uh, so I think this conflict within the party base is sort of a, a microcosm of that. I mean, you've got people in the Democratic Party who are very much pro Palestine and are very unhappy with how Israel has handled this conflict. And you've had others who are more willing to kind of give Israel the benefit of the doubt and stand with that country in how it's approaching that. Um, And so I think this Jewish caucus got sort of caught up in that, was there was a sense among other activists who are more on the pro-Palestine side that by recognizing this caucus, it would be sort of taking a stand uh, with either Zionist or uh, the Israeli uh, government approach Mm -hmm. to this conflict. And uh, a lot of them felt like maybe they shouldn't go there, whereas it then got national news because it looked like you were basically saying we're not supporting Jewish people within our party. Um, I think then that's why they recognized it was a bad look and reversed it. Initially, it didn't get recognized because a lot of them abstained from voting. I mean, this is just a, it's such a touchy issue. And so many people, particularly at the state level, just be like, I don't want to touch this. I'm not going to have a real impact on what actually happens. So I'd rather not make people mad by saying something that a lot of people are going to vehemently disagree with. And we have seen at the municipal level across the state, citizens, uh, folks attending meetings asking municipal officials to weigh in on this and to take a stance and to take a strong stance. Uh, I think at the at the municipal level, we've seen a little bit more of a leaning toward a pro-Palestine uh, stance. And that's just what we've seen here at the, at the municipal level. And of course, to, to your point, state lawmakers are wanting to maybe keep an arm's length from this, thinking, all right, this is a long way away and they don't really have a lot of uh, or any authority over it. Municipal officials have none, but they've still been uh, you know, kind of thrust into the fray to some degree. Instead of going down, I want to go up, though. I want to go up to um, uh, the federal level, Danielle. We've seen a lot of 
fractures or we've seen some fractures within Democratic uh, legislators at the uh, or members of Congress. Have there been any within uh, North Carolina's Democratic federal representatives? I think the biggest thing that we've seen, obviously, Representative Kathy Manning, she is Jewish and she has come out full-throated uh, supporting Israel. And then you have people like Representative Wiley Nickel and Representative Valerie Fushi who have gotten calls to uh, side with Palestine. And um, so that's been the biggest push and pull there. What I think is most interesting is that Israel is one of our allies. There is a huge fight right now to get funding for Israel. And um, the Republicans are trying to tie that to something they can garner from it. So right now it's border security, which those conversations keep dying. Senator Tom Tillis is a big part of trying to negotiate, which he usually is pretty good at bringing to the table with Chris Murphy, who's a Democrat from Connecticut. Um, they will meet and say, this is our non-starter on the Republican side. This is our non-starter on the Democratic side. What can we, where can we meet in the middle and get this done? On border security, those conversations have completely halted. I think they're trying to do it again this weekend, but it sounds like Republicans do not want Israel funding without border security attached to it. So it's uh, been kind of a source of tension that we are tying a um, help for an ally to a political maneuver. Danielle, Colin, Lucille are here on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup. My name is Jeff. This is Do South. I want to try to sneak in one more story before our break here. I'm going to turn to you, Lucille. Here's a little bit of background. Uh, and full disclosure, uh, you uh, offered this story up to us. Uh, an interesting piece from the Center for Public Integrity this week focusing on North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Paul Newby and his apparent conflicts of interest. More specifically, the piece notes that since 2015, Justice Newby has heard at least six cases involving Duke Energy, one of the largest utility companies in the country. This despite Justice Newby holding a direct financial stake in the company. And I noted this, but I'm going to say it again. Full disclosure seems appropriate here. Lucille, you shared the story with us during a pre-show uh, email. Did Justice Newby break a law or a judicial code or a standard by not recusing himself? I think that's what's most interesting is the answer is really no. And that's what this story presented that I thought was really interesting. Um, someone flagged it and brought it to my attention. It was one of those stories that I couldn't really put down. Hmm. Um, and what I found really interesting about how the way the story was written, it sort of said with federal judges, the federal law is that they do have to disclose specifically things like um, owning stocks in a company that you're going to consider. And also there's software so that these cases don't even come before some of these mm, judges. Interesting. Um, that sort of weeds them out before it's ever a consideration in the first place. And so, no, I mean, I think this story sort of raises questions about whether he should have recused himself, but judges have, state Supreme Court justices in North Carolina have a ton of authority to decide what they're going to recuse themselves from and what they're not going to recuse themselves from. And what the story lays out is plenty of other instances when other Supreme Court justices, not just newbie, have had sort of a stake in a case and have not recused themselves. Um, I just found it fascinating when comparing it sort of it to federal judges and when and how it's very clear that the federal law lays out when federal judges need to recuse themselves. Lucille Sherman of Axios Raleigh is here for our North Carolina Friday News Roundup on Due South. In a moment, did you know the U.S. Postal Service doesn't deliver door-to-door -door within Research Triangle Park? Well, that could change for the nearly 400 companies that operate out of RTP. Details shortly on Due South.
Welcome back. It's Due South here on WUNC. As uh, we're trying to do, just create a little tradition, Fridays, wrapping up the week in North Carolina news and politics with a roundtable of reporters uh, from across the state and sometimes Washington, D.C., as is the case today. Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent for McClatchy, is on the line. Lucille Sherman, reporter with Axios Raleigh, is in studio. So, too, is Colin Campbell, WNC Capitol Bureau Chief. We have been discussing candidate filing during part of uh, our roundup today. want to just uh, give you a little uh, programming note, reminder, uh, that next week we're planning a conversation about the non-candidate a politically engaged and passionate citizen or citizens who can't run or don't run due to time and money constraints. That's next week on Due South. Reminder to join us weekdays at 10 o'clock. Uh, and if you can't tune in, then find us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get uh, your podcasts. All right, back to the roundup now. And uh, I think as I uh, go, uh, you know, through my notes where I, I don't even know what the question is, we're turning to RTP. And we're turning to RTP and mail service and the USPS. And I didn't admittedly know anything about this until this week. Lucille, I want you to take it away from here. My brief context is uh, the United States Postal Service doesn't deliver door to door in RTP. Why is that? And when might it change? So I think they're hoping businesses in RTP are hoping that will change soon. Um, What's been happening is that every business in RTP, which is a huge economic driver for the state, um, we have Apple there. We have uh, Wolf Speed there. We have big businesses that are there. And all of those businesses have to pick up their mail at one post office, um, which is really mind boggling to think about. I can't imagine the lines <laughs> that are there. All of these businesses. I just imagine getting... the CEO of a biotech company being like, sorry, I'm going to be late for this meeting. The line at the post office was really long this morning. And I, I got to get our mail. So in... is this a jurisdictional thing? It, like, why is this? Is it is a security thing? We have far, big pharma. They don't want anybody coming up in their business. I, like, why? Danielle, go for it. They, be, they believe it goes back to the, I think, the 1960s. Okay. And allegedly, there was some rule about this that never got overturned. But there's no proof that it existed. Like, the C, I've talked to the CEO. He's tried to find, like, any evidence that this was a thing. But there seems to be no actuality of it so just for as long as rtp's been growing there's been no mail this feels very kaiser soze for the record but uh (laughs) so this is going to take an act of congress to shift is this up to lewis to join the u.s postal service like who who has the ability to change this yeah i think that members of congress have sort of gotten involved and sort of pleading with the postal service and danielle has covered a lot of this too um to fix this, because as you can imagine, members of Congress are hearing from their own constituents and businesses uh, complaining about this. And so in September, we saw that a handful of members of Congress, Senator Tom Tillis, uh, Senator Ted Budd, Representative Deborah Ross, who represents Wake County, and Representative Valerie Fushi all get together and sign a letter that says, we need to fix this. You guys, please figure this out. Um, A bunch of more than 100 RTP businesses also signed on. And then um, this week, we found out that the Postal Service responded to that letter and said, pretty much, we're working on it. Um, And have sort of outlined a series of steps that RTP businesses and sort of the area largely needs to take so that the Postal Service can sort of start delivering mail directly to businesses. 
All right. I'm going to move on. Go ahead, Danielle. Yeah. I was going to say it's like a hundred. It's not really a hundred steps, but it's a lot. of. It's not like we're getting mail now. It's here's a laundry list of things you have to do before we'll sign off on mail. Yeah. This is the opposite direction. The Postal Service is going everywhere else. Like everywhere else, it's making it harder to get your mail. I live in a neighborhood that was built just a couple of years ago, which means they don't deliver it to my house. I have to walk two blocks down the street to like a, a bank of mailboxes, similar to what an apartment complex might have. Um, and that's just the norm now that, you know, if you're a new neighborhood, they're not bringing the mail to your door. I've got a loaded and uh, I don't know, maybe a, I'm just going to ask this question anyway. If you had the option to opt out of getting mail delivery at your house altogether, would you do it? I think so. I mean, there's so much like the, the like ads that come unstapled and just explode all over the place. Like I would give that up. And I would give up the good things in the mail to get that as long as I could still have like Amazon packages delivered. Um, my answer is no. Okay. I would feel anxiously disconnected. Mm, okay. uh, but I think that might be my personality type. Also, we recently moved to Garner and everybody mm. in Garner has their mailboxes by their house. Mm. But the Postal Service has said we need to move our mailbox to the street and have threatened to not deliver mail to which we've said, go for it. <laughs> Um, so I don't know. That could happen to me soon. We are in the midst of probably a two to two and a half, three week period, which might be my favorite of the year for mail because I'm getting Christmas cards, getting holiday cards, very much enjoy that connecting with so on and so forth. Uh, but largely for for chunks of the year, there's just nothing but trash that comes to my, my mailbox each day. Uh, and I've, I've wondered at times if it's really necessary. I'm going to move on before I get in trouble, though. Um, <laughs> I want to spend a minute or two, moment or two, on a billion-dollar grant that was announced this week. That's with a B. And this is for Raleigh to Richmond high-speed passenger rail. Uh, Danielle, tell us a little bit about this $1 billion and what it theoretically is going to go toward. It's going to go to a uh, high-speed train between Richmond and Raleigh, which would be great for Danielle. Is a billion dollars enough for all of that track? A third of that track is just this just the thir- the, the the first wave or phase of it? Like these are big numbers, and this is a big project. Give us the overarching. Like how far does a billion get us? I would love to know the answer to that. I'm okay, going to be honest. We had our uh, transportation uh, reporter covering this story okay. this week while I was tackling White House duty, but um, it seems like it should, right? It's a billion dollars. I've never had that much money. I have a lot of questions about this heist. I've never had that much money either, just for, for the record. Uh, and we will have um, a conversation next week on Due South about uh, the high-speed rail. We're going to get into this with uh, Richard Stradling of uh, McClatchy of the News and Observer, who has been uh, covering it this week but uh, is not here on our Friday News Roundup. Um, this billion-dollar light rail, Colin, or, or, or high-speed rail, uh, is, it a, is it a game changer? Is it is it just... I don't know, five years too late? I mean, it's it's been in the works for a long time. It certainly makes it a lot easier uh, cutting off some of the travel time if you're taking the train somewhere north. It's really, as Daniel mentioned, if you're going to D.C. or points north, this is really helpful. If you're just going to Richmond, it probably doesn't matter that much because the drive from the Triangle to Richmond ain't that bad anyway. Um, what's fascinating to me is that we're getting all this money for high-speed rail going north while we've still struggled uh, to get any traction with light, light rail or anything connecting points in the Triangle. So... Does this mean it'll be faster to get from Raleigh to Richmond than it would be from Raleigh to Chapel Hill if you're trying to take public transit? That'll be interesting to see as this project comes along. Trains are popular uh, around here. 
quick cut from State Transportation Secretary Joey Hopkins on uh, Carolinians evidently already loving to take the train without high speed. We've had passenger rail in North Carolina, the Piedmont and Carolinian, for about 32 years. And in 2022, we broke the all-time record for passengers in the state in that. And we're on track this year to, to, to even break that. Danielle? I was going to say the funny thing is Richmond is where you get all the traffic. So it takes you to the traffic zone. That's true. I, I'm, I, like, <laughs> I like trains a lot. I have young, young kids. I would love to, to ride the train with my children. We also have family in Richmond. And from my perspective, I was reading a little bit about this, and it said, you know, the train from Raleigh to Richmond uh, could be a 90-mile-an-hour train. Okay, how many stops is it going to take? How much is it going to cost to ride that train from Raleigh to Richmond? Because, you know, if it costs you, I don't know, 15 bucks in gas to get up to Richmond, are you really going to spend 25 or 30 or 40 bucks on a on a high-speed ticket to get to Richmond? And, and, and Richmond is one of those sprawly cities that, like, you kind of need a car when you get there. I mean, if you, you take it to D.C., then you can get the metro. If you take it to New York City, you can mm-hmm. get on the subway. But uh, any of these other points, those, those are car-centric cities, and it's hard to get there and get around once you're there without a car. I think the idea is mainly that sort of it's connecting Raleigh and a big part of the Southeast to the Northeast. Like this Mm -hmm. will be, it sort of seems silly, you know, Richmond to Raleigh, but I think it'll be a big connector to sort of two different regions and bridge these two different regions um, and could be like a really big, you know, Tillis who made the announcement this week. um, It's supposed to be announced formally today. um, Sort of, indicated that this could be huge for economic development in this region. And so I think, yes, Raleigh to Richmond sort of seems like a short connector, but I think in general it'll almost be connecting two major regions of the country. Uh, I think that's a great point. I I will, uh, I don't know, offer a couple of quick things here. One is uh, sometimes I've had conversations with people who are new to the Raleigh area, and I'm like, oh, yeah, D.C. is four hours up the road if you leave at the right time. They're like, no, we're not that close. I say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you leave at 2 in the morning and get there by <laughs> 6 a.m. One of my favorite ways to get into D.C., for the record, is to drive to Richmond and take the train because right. you don't need a car in D.C. It's expensive to have a car in D.C. D.C. is a very walkable city, uh, and it's a great way to just split up the, the trip I just take the train right in, but now light rail or uh, high-speed rail and then slower train on up. Lucille Sherman, Colin Campbell, Danielle Battaglia here on our North Carolina Friday News Roundup. Lucille had a piece that was published this week in the Assembly, not her employer, but she she wrote the piece for the Assembly. She works for Axios. It was all about Cody Kinsley, who is uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services here in North Carolina. Uh, Lucille, for those who don't know, let's start broad. Uh, Tell us who Cody Kinsley is uh, and why he's kind of having a moment. Yeah. So he's our state health department director. He's the secretary of North Carolina's Department of Health and Human Services, which is a giant agency with thousands and thousands of employees Mm -hmm. and has a huge role in sort of how our state functions and how all of us function. It has its hands in so many things. It has its hands in child care. It has its hands in um, vaccinations. It has its hands in so many things that I don't even think we really realize. Um, And so Cody Kinsley, who is fairly young, he's 38, leads this agency. And he um, was sort of a big player, I found, in the last year and a half of covering Medicaid expansion. He was a big player in getting Medicaid expansion across the finish line. That was a huge priority for Democrats. It has been for years. It was a huge priority for this agency and sort of expanding health care to around 600,000 
government health care coverage to around 600,000 people. Um, and so I really wrote about a couple of things. One, who Kensley is um, and how this, you know, he feels very young to be running such mm-hmm. a big department. Um, and not it, feels. He is. He's he under is 40. Very he young. is very young to he be running such a big young. department. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's very young to be running a big department, how he got to that, and also sort of like what his role was in getting Medicaid expansion across the finish line. I should say... So many people played a huge role in getting expansion across the finish line. I think, you know, one of the sea change moments was um, one of the Republican that was sort of most opposed to Medicaid expansion for really a decade sort of changed his mind in a really stunning move. And so he was sort of the sea change moment in making that happen. And then Cody Kinsley sort of played a role behind the scenes. What I think is super interesting about him is, one, he's a North Carolina local. He's from Wilmington. He grew up without health care insurance. And I thought that that was just very full circle. His parents didn't have health care until the Affordable Care Act passed and they signed up. So to think that like a kid who grew up without health care coverage, whose parents first had health care um, under the Affordable Care Act, became the person who helped expand that same program mm-hmm. um, to families who grew up like him was really interesting to me. And then last, like he played a huge role in this sort of getting expansion across the finish line because he built a lot of relationships with the Republicans, which in this sort of era is not exactly common to have a Democrat, which Cody Kinsley is build really strong relationships with really conservative Republicans. And that was sort of the most fascinating thing about writing about him. Yank on that thread a little bit more for me, if you would. I'm curious, is part of it because uh, he grew up as he did without Healthcare. He's he he's not a he's not a Ivy League elite kind of thing. Yeah. Is is part of that because he's thirty eight and he's new to the game and he hasn't been around long enough for Republicans to hate him. I think it's a lot of things. I think one of them is he grew up. I didn't put this in my story, but he grew up going to the Southern Baptist Church with his grandfather. Okay. Um. I think you know we have a, a lot of Southern Baptists in the legislature that he sort of built relationships with. Um, I also think a big thing was that he worked in the Trump administration. He was the only holdover in the U.S. Treasury Department that was an Obama appointee and that Trump kept on in that administration. Um, so he was briefly in a Republican presidential administration that sort of set him up to be able to work with Republicans um, in a way that I think some people might not expect. Um, I also just think it's his personality to just sort of be like, what can we get done. And I would rather make some progress than none. And that's a sort of approach. One thing you learned from reporting this piece. Um, I guess it shouldn't, it isn't that hard to build relationships with people across the aisle. I, I think it was interesting because Kinsley is remarkable and that he has such strong relationships with people um, in the other party. But it just really doesn't have to be that hard. <laughs> um, and I think in this era of politics, it is, you know, there's sort of a lot of things that get in the way of that. Um, but his approach to it made it seem, you know, sort of fairly simple. Cody Kinsley is the secretary of health and human services here in North Carolina. Lucille Sherman wrote about him. You can read about it at the assembly 
Com. Colin, I'm not leaving you much time, but I'm going to leave you a little bit to tell us uh, about a community, Disney-inspired, Disney-manufactured that's coming to Pittsburgh. What is this, and why did it pique your interest? Yeah, so they're, they're building a neighborhood in part of a uh, attempt to have Disney-themed uh, housing throughout the country. Uh, and this just fascinated me because I, I feel like I'm watching too much Mickey Mouse Clubhouse at my house with my kid. You might be. And I'm just imagining houses built like that with an HOA that's, you know, really in your face about how your lawn should look. It'll be fascinating. Fascinating to see how this neighborhood develops in Pittsburgh, a very growing part of the triangle. Do not know if your HOA dues will cover brunch uh, with Minnie and uh, Donald Duck once that is up and running uh, in Pittsburgh. Colin Campbell is WNC's Capitol Bureau Chief. Danielle Battaglia is Capitol Hill correspondent for the News and Observer. And Lucille Sherman is reporter with Axios Raleigh. Thanks, y'all, so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks. One final newsy note update for us on the way out. Colin pointed this out uh, in our chat that is live during the Friday News Roundup. There's a memo out from UNC Chapel Hill. It says Kevin Goskowitz will leave January the 12th, so a little bit more than a month uh, remaining for Kevin Guskowitz before he departs to Michigan State. Uh, that is one of the topics we discussed earlier in this uh, Friday News Roundup here on North Carolina Public Radio. Aaron Kiever produced this segment. Denarius Thomas, our technical director, was on the board. Our other producers of Due South are Cole Del Charco, Rachel McCarthy, and Stacia Brown. For Leonida Inge, I'm Jeff Tiberi. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again on Monday.